It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage project. Our theme for today is responding to the new Israeli reality, or how should we respond? In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, discuss a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of Hartman Faculty in North America, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Let's begin. Many Israelis and diaspora Jews are still reeling from the shock of the electoral victory of Netanyahu's Likud party and its ultra-nationalist and ultra-Orthodox partners. Each day seems to bring with it new, previously inconceivable headlines. From far-right, rightist Ben Gvir, the new Minister of Internal Security, who may be given unprecedented authority over the police force, to the placing of control of much of the affairs of Judea and Samaria in the hands of Bezalel Smotrich, to various coalition partners and members declaring their desire to change a law of return, pass an override bill that would grant a simple 61 majority in the Knesset the right to override Supreme Court decisions. How should politically centrist and center-left and left-wing Israelis and even center-right-wing Israelis and diaspora Jews respond to these possible threats to Israel's democracy and liberal Jewish commitments because these threats go beyond and transcend the left and right-wing divides, which were so central to much of our thinking. This is really unprecedented. In Israel, some are calling for extreme drastic action, like mass civil disobedience. Some even go further to argue and to advocate for some form of a tax revolt in protest of the vast sums that will be diverted to the ultra-Orthodox community and settlements. In North America, some are speaking of boycotting certain Israeli ministers, protesting, coordinating efforts to undermine Israel's support in Congress, etc. But many others are just contemplating walking away. What is the best way to respond? How should we, those in the center, right, and left, who care about Israel's democracy, who care about its relationship to world Jewry, who care about the rule of law, What is the best way for us to respond at this moment? This, Yossi, is a heavy issue. And I'm now in North America. Ilana, you're in North America. Yossi, uh, I'm on the fourth week of my trip. Yossi, you just came back. So with the exception of Ilana, who doesn't have the necessary Israeli side, we've all been engulfed in speaking and meeting with, with Jews from both sides of the, I don't know, is it called the pond? Yossi, what's your feeling? What's your take now? What's constructive? You know, I I try to process traumas and uh, challenges through writing. I sit down and I try to write a column 
and it's therapeutic, and I hope it's useful for some people. I've been trying for weeks to write a column. Nothing comes out right. I have dozens of pages. I have a novella <laughs> at this point. <laughs> you know, what is constructive to say? I have different directions, nothing coherent. And I think that I'm emerging from the shock and the depression. But honestly, Daniil, I don't have clarity. And this is after weeks of meeting with American Jews, American Jewish leaders, speaking to groups, and trying to give some direction to people. I, I, you know, I have a few ideas, but really, what's a coherent way forward? What's your thinking? I hope you're you're more coherent than I am. Um, listen, I asked the question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I set myself up. What is that? <laughs> but 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 the truth is is that I limited the discussion from the beginning, and I did so intentionally. I didn't ask you how are you responding. I asked you what's constructive, and I feel that that has to guide us. I want to know any Jewish leader or educator who writes something, speaks something, I want to know what your theory of change is. Now, I could accept that not everybody's going to be as controlled as I'll be. You know, I have decades of learning how to put myself into action mode and override my feelings because of a job that I have to do. Something that you and I, we both, that goes back to our army days where in many ways we were trained to disassociate ourselves and to do what was necessary. Now, I understand that people are fearful. I understand that people are, are even panicky. But I really believe that we have to ask ourselves now what is constructive. If you make a declaration or you write an op-ed, and now, by the way, everybody's a journalist. So everybody now, it's one thing when you're a journalist and you have to report. And you want to report and you want to critique, but now every we're all journalists. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, Yossi. <laughs> it's like no. So look, you, you know, know what I mean. So I'm like, there. I'm there. So now, I'm good. With you. So now, I but, I believe I believe I, that doesn't help give me clarity. Now I'm getting there. I'm just warming up. <laughs> 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 what I think is going to be constructive is anything that could help change the reality in Israel. If the purpose of your conversation or your statements is just going to distance people, I appreciate it. I understand it. I maybe even understand where it's coming from. But protest alone, which causes greater alienation, is something that I want all of us to be very, very careful from. Now, I have a theory of change. I have a theory of change in which we have to fight for the Israel we want. That the government of Israel is only one factor in determining reality in Israel. It's not the only factor. It just isn't. It's a significant factor. They have the power to legislate. But now this other government was in power. A prior coalition was in power for a year plus. Did Israel completely change? Have all the settlements been dismantled? Have Haredim all of a sudden lost their funding from the country? The reality is that they haven't. There are so many levels of a society in which civil society, in fact, is far more important in shaping everyday life than a minister even or a government proclamation. So part of what I want to ask people is I want us to be aware of what the government's doing. And in many ways, I want of all of us, if you're for this government, then celebrate. 
But if you're not, to focus all our attention on every single statement that somebody is going to make and to create this constant cycle. I was speaking about this the other day. There's a new six-day cycle in Jewish life followed by Shabbat. The cycle goes something like this, Yossi. Someone makes a statement. It's not a legislation. It's not thought out. It's not agreed by everybody. But it's a statement. It's a statement worthy of coverage in the press, and the press have a job to cover it. And it's an aggravating, alienating, upsetting, sometimes ultra-nationalist, sometimes racist statement. Front headlines. It's there. Then from that day, for the next five days, every single Jewish leader and commentator is going to critique that statement. So now from this one statement, we now have six days in which we are now responding to it. Then we have Shabbat. Then the cycle is going to continue again. There'll be another statement and another five days of response. And this is going to go on and on. And I could see the next four years, there's something perverse. I don't want to live that way. You'll see, I don't want to live in constant response to every single ultra-nationalist burp, critique, or even legislation. Or even legislation. Even legislation. No. I think we need a multiplicity of responses. And one of the essential responses is to put the government on notice that it is being monitored, critiqued, that every burp is being noted. And certainly any move to legislation is going to be challenged by what Gadi Eisenkot, the former IDF chief of staff, said uh, will require a million people in the streets. That's one level of response, and one doesn't negate the other. Now, I'm with you, Danilo, that we need to find ways of speaking to that part of the Israeli public, which happens to be the majority. <laughs> that, and that's not my camp. I'm now in the minority, and I have to find ways of speaking with respect of trying to make my case in a way that can be heard by the Israeli majority. And my starting point is that the language, and we've spoken about this, the language that dominates American discourse, the language of the deplorables, that has no place in Israeli discourse. And, and the fact that we do have people on the other side who are ready to listen, is borne out by the polls of the last few days. I don't know how much you're following from the States, but there's been Yossi, a whole Yossi, series of polls. Yossi, there's yeah. something called internet. Internet. There's something, it comes across. I don't, even, <laughs> I don't, I don't trust the, the, you don't the, trust the, this, the technological. Things, no. <laughs> but uh, the polls have, uh, have been very encouraging. Not only are a majority, 61%, according to Channel 12, are worried about the future of Israeli democracy, but 40% of those who voted for the Netanyahu bloc parties are also worried about the future of democracy here. A large majority oppose changes in the religious status quo, oppose changes at the wall, oppose changes in the law of return. So, we're the minority in one sense, and I think we have to remember that we're the majority in another sense. And so the question is, why do we keep finding ourselves in the minority when so many Israelis agree with us on other issues? What is the Achilles heel of the liberal camp? And I think we know the answer. The answer is security. People voted, half a million Israelis voted for Ben Gvir, not because they suddenly woke up one morning and said, you know, Kahana Tzadak, Kahana was right. 
They voted for Ben Gvir, most of them, because they have good security reasons to be afraid, because there is a drastic decline in personal security, a rise in terrorism, and Israelis are looking for answers. Now, I think they're looking in very bad places for those answers. But between that and dismissing all of Ben Gvir's voters as fascists, how do we make a distinction? So, Yossi, I'm with you. So let's leave the analysis of that. So first of all, and this is important, it turns out that maybe you nor I were not in the minority, and it's important to recognize that. But when you mentioned Eisenkut, Eisenkut made a statement and said, we have to go into the streets. That's a theory of change. Mm-hmm. That's a theory of change. How is it that you create change in Israeli society? How is it that you marshal? Is it 50%? Is it 60% of those who are concerned about democracy, those who are concerned about state and religion, those who are concerned about human rights, those who worry about the security of the state of Israel and the Jewish people who live there, but also want that security to coincide with a commitment to democracy, that it isn't an either or, and that very often the nature of elections is that it accentuates differences, makes things very black, white, either or, and you make these decisions, and then afterwards you have to live with nuances. Very often what happens is coalitions themselves begin to nuanceify themselves in ways that are far more complicated than the slogans they mentioned beforehand. Nuanceify. You, you didn't think I would let that pass without comment. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering. <laughs> I, I, I was wondering, but it's a word that should be added. It should be. It should be. It's, I think I turned it into a verb. I have no idea what I did with it, but it's something. Now, what I don't want to be understood, and I'm sure some of our audiences here is saying, oh, Daniil's whitewashing it. Daniil, because he's a Zionist, which is true, and because Daniil is concerned about the relationship between Israel and world Jewry, which is true, and because Daniil doesn't want the Jewish people to walk away from each other, that is true. Daniil is choosing everything that will avoid some of the more severe consequences. That's true. Now, I'm with you. I'm not interested in giving this government a pass for anything that is ultranationalist, immoral, racist, in any way whatsoever. But I'm asking, is this constant elevation? You know, more Jews now know the name Ben Gvir than they know Yair Lapid. I guarantee it. All of a sudden, we all yes. know about Smotrich, Ben Gvir, the Noam Party. Who heard of the Noam Party? Ma'oz. Ah, all a, of a sudden, a, he's a but hero. An, but wait, wait, Daniil, there's a great example of change. Avi Ma'oz who was a nobody a few weeks ago, came into the Knesset on a party of one, an anti-LGBTQ party. Netanyahu gives him outsized authority within the education ministry. And what happens? There's a revolt among local authorities. We will not accept curriculum from Avi Maoz. One city after another, one town after another announced a revolt, civic revolt. What does Netanyahu do? What he always does when people push back against him, he backs down. Netanyahu is a bully who invariably will back down if if you stand up to him. And he's now beginning to strip Maoz of some of his authority, and he's reassuring the education ministry that Maoz is not going to have far-reaching authority. Now, there's an example right now of how change happens. Now, I'm not saying that that needs to be our mode of operation across the board, but don't take out of the toolbox something that's already proven successful 
And let's look at a multiplicity of responses from education and dialogue with political opponents to pressure when necessary. I'm, I'm all for pressure. And you're right. The nature of every government is that it does respond to pressure. I'm not trying to depressurize the discourse. I'm trying to focus. Detoxify. In, it's not even, and de- I, and I it's not even detoxifying, Yossi. As I was traveling around North America, and I wonder whether you've experienced the same thing, I found that the fear itself and experiencing it was becoming an end. It's not that people wanted it. Yes. It was forced yes. upon people. Yes. It's engulfing us and becoming a reality unto itself. To talk about the fear, to delve into the fear, to, I don't want to say obsess about it. It's not obsessive. It's just being frightened is becoming a primary aspect of our relationship with Israel. And so let's make a distinction, Daniil, right? This is a useful distinction between being overwhelmed by fear and being alert to danger. And the danger is coming fast and furious. And we need to name it. We need to understand what's happening and yet not be paralyzed by fear. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? You see, but here, let's go back to the example what you mentioned of the, I think it came to 61 or 62 mayors and heads of regional councils. What happened? They got up and said, excuse me, we are going to take control over the education of our children. We're not going to allow a homophobic, misogynist, 13th century thinker determine the future of Israeli society. We marshaled our forces. It's about building. It's about asking ourselves, what is the Israel we want? And I have a feeling, and I know I'm always an optimist, and I know I always want to see the rosy side, and it's true, I do. But the fact is, is that I believe People voted for a multiplicity of reasons, and some of the statements being put forth by individual representatives of various parties are far outside of the consensus of Israel, and they will actually be very conducive to restructuring what you and I were so excited about, and that is a national unity, not government, but a national unity social coalition. And that is- contract. We need a new contract. We need a contract, and I believe that so many Israelis, since, as you said, we vote for fear, that the primary fear is existential. There's certain existential fears that people are worried about, and they vote for them, and they ignore the others. But now part of what's happening is people are saying, that's not the Israel. I also have, I'm frightened of that too. I'm not just yeah. frightened about what's happening in the Negev and the Galil. I am frightened about that. I'm not just frightened about what's happening in mixed cities. I'm frightened about that. I'm not just frightened about the fact that the reality is, is that Israel has a remarkably powerful army, but a remarkably disempowered police force. We have to deal with that. But now I'm also frightened about other things. And so I don't want to play on that fear, but the reality is, is that there is a possibility to marshal a social coalition. And when Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs and North American Jews and lovers of Israel around the world push and fight for and declare not just a criticism of, but statements regarding what is the Israel that we want, push and advocate for that, Ah, we we are, can, now, we, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. I, I love this idea of a national conversation on a new understanding or a reaffirmation of what it is that's essential about Israeli identity. What is Israel? 
And it's so interesting because this election, this series of elections, has metamorphosized from initially being a referendum on Netanyahu, yes, Netanyahu, no Netanyahu, then it became a referendum on security. And that's what this last election was about. But what's actually playing out is neither of those issues. What's playing out is a much deeper fundamental conversation over what do we mean by a Jewish state and what do we mean by a democratic state? Because there are forces in this government that are riding their return to power and taking a mandate that they do not have from the electorate to make far-reaching changes in the deepest level of Israeli identity. And that's where we need to bring the conversation That's back. correct. And what'll be really interesting, Yossi, to see is what are the issues that are raised? Now, LGBTQ rights, there's a very, very strong national consensus outside of the ultra-Orthodox community, even within half of the religious Zionist community. There's a not, strong and Danielle, not for ideological reasons, but for family reasons. Very These often. Are kids. There are kids. That's it could be a very Israeli attitude. That's true. And it's interesting also for not changing the law of return. There's a very strong lobby. There's a very strong social force. And it's very interesting, your observation. It could be that it's ideological, and it could be that it is it's just our families. We don't like it when people disqualify fellow Jews. But the issue is, are we going to be as vigilant on issues of state and religion? Are we going to be as vigilant on issues of the override clause and democracy? Are we going to be as vigilant on rights of Israeli-Palestinians? So there are certain issues that, mm. the you know, when the 62 or 61 mayors came forth, it was mostly saying, you're not going to change our the curriculum that we are creating in our schools, which is a curriculum for tolerance for people with different gender identities. But what about curriculum for tolerance with different Jewish identities, with different religious identities. So you could see distinctions between the mayor of Tel Aviv, who's far more nuanced on this, and a mayor maybe in Batyam, who that's not his issue. So what will this coalition be? And our job is to shape it not only on issues in which we naturally have this sense of communal loyalty, but it's precisely those in which there's a vision of Israel, a stand on human rights, what Palestinians in Judea and Samaria don't have rights? What Israeli Palestinians don't have rights? What is it we're going to do? What are the statements that we're going to tolerate? This is going to be a very, very serious issue. And this national unity, I don't know what we want to call it, social coalition, is going to be tested on our ability to expand outside of that which is already the core family. Our challenge is to develop a language that isn't political, but is identity-based. And when we speak politically, we lose the other camp. When we speak from a place of shared identity and values, that's when we begin to have an opening for a shared conversation. And we know that. We know that at the Hartman Institute. We know that from our own conversations. We need to take that model and begin spreading that in Israeli society. Now, the issue where it gets complicated, and this I appreciate very much, is that when you're in Israel, you feel profoundly empowered. When you're outside of Israel and you can't march, you feel disempowered. And it's true, you do. But then I want to, I want to speak to my colleagues and friends and 
rabbis and educational and political leaders of the American Jewish community. I know that your ability to march is not as significant because you're six to 10,000 miles away. But beware of this constant cycle of op-ed criticisms because it's not about creating a new coalition. It's about critiquing a government. And it places you and your followers more outside of the conversation than inside it. We Israelis and you together, we have to find a ways for you to participate. And it can't just be through funding. That's true. It's not bad. But that's not the only way. There has to be a way of parallel protests, conversations, engagement with, learning about, increasing dialogue between which enables North American Jews in the United States and Canada to feel empowered and to be seen as partners in a conversation. Even Avigdor Lieberman, who used to say, I don't care about world jury, now all of a sudden is turning to world jury and saying, one second, do you really want to change the law of return? Even he. Okay, that means we recognize that what Jews around the world feel is important. Now, how do you do so in a way which doesn't give all the power to Ben Gvir and Smotrich and Maoz and other negative forces. How do you not enable them to dominate your consciousness and so instead one of the to build it what, with the partners? Be part of that coalition. That's going to yeah, be a critical one, yes. issue. You'll okay, see last so one, word, and then we're going to turn to Ilana. One of the messages that I was offering American Jewish audiences on this last trip was we need to start nurturing a conversation between the American Jewish mainstream and the Israeli political center. Until now, far too many liberal American Jews saw their main address in Israel and in Israeli politics as being on the left. The Labor Party, Meretz, even farther left, smaller extra-parliamentary groups what this election proved decisively is that the divide in Israel today is no longer left versus right. It's center versus right. And American Jews need to start reorienting their notion of who their conversation partners are, who their allies are politically in Israel, from the left to the center, in order to really begin creating a, a more substantive alliance and then let's see what develops, you know, without any agenda. Just let's start a conversation. Let's take a short break, and then Ilana uh, will join us. Ilana, how are you feeling today? <laughs> well, you know, what I'm seeing is travel in America is very good for your optimism, both of you. This is, <laughs> this is what I'm noticing. It's pretty great. Um, I'm actually, not surprisingly... I'm kind of feeling how much easier it is to talk about a different country's problems <laughs> than about our own. And I do want to point out that it takes a tremendous amount of self-discipline to talk about your own society and ask, how can I be constructive? And not just, how can I share my anger right now? Which I think is just, it's great. And I want to think about how I do that within an American context also. I'm thinking a lot about Hanukkah because it's coming and there's the piece of it that nobody likes to talk about, which is the Civil War piece. In fact, when you look at the Book of Maccabees, the way the Hanukkah started was through a sense of um, Mila Hashem Eli, who is for God, come to me and everybody else, you can go you know where. And there was violence 
and it was ugly. And it's not for naught that we kind of hide that part of the story. And that part of the story doesn't become central. And when I look at what's going on right now, the fear that we're talking about and the potential for legislation that could lead to violence or could encourage violence in one way or another, I really worry about the idea of the Jewish people globally being in some sort of civil war. And I really don't want that. So I want to start, you know, you're talking about within Israeli society itself. I'm thinking about both within Israeli society, global Jewry. And so I I want to start with a very simple verse from Proverbs, from Mishle. It's a beautiful verse. And it, it goes like this. As face answers to face in water, so does one person's heart to another. Right? So something about water, something about faces. And so the Midrash in Mishle 27.4, for those who like to look these things up, uh, Rabbi Hanina says, what do you mean? Water doesn't have a face. What do, what do you mean? As face answers face in water? He says, what does it mean? When someone puts water into a vessel and looks into it, they see their reflection. The same works with a heart. When I show a certain attitude and visage to people, they see that visage and they become that visage. And I do think, and I've seen this in the United States, back to the deplorables point, when you look at other people in a way that manifests that you think they're ugly, they look at you and think you're ugly. When you look at them with anger and animosity, they look at you with anger and animosity. And it is a never-ending cycle of anger and animosity. And those cycles can blow up, but even if they don't blow up, it is such a bad way to live. It is just such a bad way to live. And so that's the first thing that I wanna put on the table, which is let's not get into this cycle of animosity. And I think, Danielle, to your point of the orientation primarily of criticism, actually it continues that cycle. You criticize, they criticize, you criticize, they criticize until, you know, before you know it, you thought you were going to go to couples counseling, but it turns out relationship's over. It's too late. We don't really want to do that. So that's the first thing that I want to say. Even as I want to say, I, I feel that struggle within American society, and I, I don't think we're doing so well about it. The second thing that I want to say is I want to go to protest for a minute because there is a really strong rabbinic value of protest, right? The Gemara in Shabbat 54b, anyone who had the capability to effectively protest, right? The Hebrew for it is a mecha'a, right? To effectively protest sinful conduct of somebody else and they didn't, of their household and they didn't, they're also blamed for the sins of their household. If you were in position to protest the sinful conduct of the people of your town and you don't, you're also in trouble for what your town did. And if you could have protested the sinful conduct of the whole world and you failed to do so, you're also caught in the web of whose fault is it? Well, it's partially your fault. But what I think is even more provocative is on the next, you know, it's always on the next folio of the Talmud. It's like, we look at like the nice little, here's the two lines, but no, you got to keep, you got to go a little bit deeper. And it basically, it cites a verse in Ezekiel chapter nine, verse four, where God basically says, I want you to put a mark on the heads of all the people who are innocent so that when it's time for punishment, none of them will get hurt. And the Gemara says as follows, the Talmud says as follows. God says to the angel Gabriel, go and inscribe a mark of ink on the foreheads of the righteous as a sign so that the angels of destruction will not have dominion over them. And inscribe a mark of blood. Now this is already very violent. And inscribe a mark of blood on the foreheads of the wicked as a sign so that the angels of destruction 
will have dominion over them. And then the attribute of justice comes in and says, wait, 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 wait. What's the difference between these people who you're saying are righteous and those people who you're saying are wicked? So God says, what do you mean? I, I said, these are full-fledged righteous people and these are full-fledged wicked people. And the attribute of justice says, what do you mean? If you're righteous and you don't protest the conduct of the wicked, what makes you so righteous? God says, no, 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 you don't understand. I know that even if they had protested the conduct of the wicked, the wicked wouldn't have accepted their reprimand. And so, you know, I let them off the hook. <laughs> so the attribute of justice, it's like, I'm not always the biggest fan of the attribute of justice, but in this moment, the attribute of justice is just unbelievable. It says to God, well, you know that the wicked wouldn't have listened to them, but did they know that? <laughs> they didn't know that. That wasn't a foregone conclusion. And what I see in here is it, it really is important both for the sense of what's right to be able to protest and say, even if you're not sure that it's going to go anywhere, but there's also a sense of, we want you to be effective. We want that protest to actually go somewhere. So Yossi, when you talk about the protest of educational leaders saying, we're not going to enforce those, that's a protest that's actually going to go somewhere, right? So where's a protest where I'm saying it because I want to show this is wrong, and where's a protest where I'm doing it because I effectively can do something here? And I do think that this is a big question for North American Jews. I, I agree with you. Um, I think we all agree with each other. I know. It's not, it's, there's not a lot of argument for the sake of heaven here. There's not a lot. Of, <laughs> but a, there's a lot true. of doing for the sake of heaven here. There's a lot of doing for the sake of heaven. No, and, and these distinctions, and it's a tough one. Because I know a lot of my friends and colleagues who head different institutions, they get pressure from their congregants, from their donors. How come you didn't respond? How come you didn't respond? It's your turn to respond. You know, everybody else is responding. How come you're not responding? And the dynamic is a pressure to respond instead of having a serious debate as what's going to be helpful. Our colleague Yehuda Kurtzer made a really interesting distinction when people were asking him to respond to certain things. He said, I don't respond to statements. I respond to policy changes, not statements about the policy changes, and even about the policy changes. Very often, the first vote in the Knesset is what everybody brouhaha is about, but it has to pass three readings, and it's only on the third reading that all the changes, That, but everybody is already checked out. So this government is going to challenge us. And many of the leaders, they're going to live in a desire to control the media waves and to control the conversation and almost waiting for us to constantly create that cycle of animosity, which they feed from too. All I am pleading for everybody is to recognize that this is a very dangerous moment. This is not a simple moment. Israel is or can possibly embody policies that none of us could have even imagined. How we're going to fight them, not how we're going to critique them, is, I believe, the most significant challenge we face. And at the end of the day, being productive is going to determine not what your congregants or your donors like, but being productive is going to determine Jewish history. Yossi and Ilana, last words, and then we'll conclude. Just to go back to where I began, with my frustration and not being able to write something, you've actually made me feel a lot better about it. Because uh, in a way, this is a moment to pause. It's a moment to think before you speak and publish. 
you don't want to say anything that could be irrevocable, that could, God forbid, hurt Israel in ways that you don't intend, and you want to be effective. And, and we're in new territory, and we're all going to, I think, need to take a deep breath and figure out how to be most effective. And Alana, really, as you're making, I think, a very important distinction between being effective and effectively protesting when necessary and venting because you just have to say something. I think we need to control the venting. Ilana, last words? Yeah, my last word is actually about our colleague, Tani Frank, in Israel. Because I just saw two, and I think Tani was responsible for both of these. I just saw two incredible convenings that happened at Hartman, Jerusalem in the last little while. One was about the law of return and one was about Shabbat in the public square. And the people I saw as part of the conversations there, it was across the spectrum. That's correct. It was real community organizing across the spectrum to discuss and debate, not harangue, discuss and debate and figure out what is right for the society. And that is the kind of stuff that does not get press, but that's the stuff that moves society. And I, I want us to see more of that in public and doing more of that in public because it was, I was inspired. Thank you, my friends. I would just say, you know, this is our last podcast for 2022. Our next podcast is going to come out right after the new years, but this is a chance for me, first of all, to thank all of our listeners because I hope you're enjoying and learning because I have to tell you, I really appreciate this model because Ilana Yossi, I feel so much better every time I talk with you. <laughs> so, so first I want to thank all of our listeners for giving us the opportunity because I don't know if we would have done this without them. So first of all, I want to thank all of you for allowing us to work out in front of you our frustrations, our struggles, our unworked out thoughts and reveal our thought processes. So uh, And our hopes. And, and, our, and, hopes. and, our, and our hopes. So first of all, I want to thank all of you for that. And as Ilana, Yossi, and as we travel, this podcast is, is having more and more weight. And uh, we also have a serious responsibility to what we say and how we say it. Thank you for listening. To our friends, if this podcast is important to you, if this podcast is meaningful to you, if the work of the Hartman Institute is important and meaningful to you, as the year comes to an end, please join us, help, contribute, support, listen, share, help make this happen. These things don't happen in a void. And finally, let's give the official credits to those who do really all the hard work. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Kelman and edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC. Our production manager is M. Lewis Gordon. Transcripts of our shows are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. We're going to see you and be together at the beginning of 2023. 2022 was a great year for us. We have a lot of challenges. And um, as Yossi said, we have to work not just on fear. We also have to work on hope. Be well, everybody. And and Yossi and Ilana was wonderful, wonderful being with you. Thank you. Same. Same. Thank you.